You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome. I think this is going to be a very fun episode. We've got uh, Raul Marquez visiting with us, the former 154-pound world champion, and, of course, an excellent broadcaster who is now a member of the Showtime broadcasting team, does the Showbox series, and also um, uh, does our Showtime championship boxing series in Spanish for our Spanish broadcast. And he's a wonderful, wonderful uh, guy, and we're going to get to visit with him later on. Uh, But before we do all of that, we are going to answer a number of your questions, and we're going to chat a little bit about the sport of boxing. And for that, I bring in another wonderful guy, my good friend and cohort here, Mr. Tripp Mitchell. Tripp, how are you? I am great, and we had so much fun watching you guys back in Connecticut on Saturday night. My wife and I sat down, and it's fun to watch a team that is having a great time doing the fights. We do, yeah. We we do enjoy it, and uh, um, a... uh, a teaser that uh, on our next broadcast, we're going to be <clears throat> bringing you an interview I did with uh, Mauro Ronaldo, who is, of course, my, uh, one, my, one of my partners on the Showtime Championship Boxing Series. I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's a very special interview. Um, but we do have a good time, and, uh, and we're kind of getting our bearings, too, uh, in terms of doing it in that setting, which, um, you know, it it's 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 interesting i don't know how fans will react to me even saying this but it's a it's a very um easy way to negotiate doing a broadcast because there's literally no one else there other than the crew and you can you focus there's no distractions there's no crowd there's no nothing so even when you're walking around or you're getting ready to do your stand-up you're doing whatever there's nothing to distract a moment of your thought process. And so that's kind of intriguing. Well, the thing that I miss, because I'm a deep and thoughtful person, is the ring card girls. <laughs> that is a very good point. There are no ring card girls. Um, uh, and uh, you've hit on the salient point, I think, about boxing in the COVID post, or not post, <laughs> we're not in the post COVID 19 era, we're in the COVID 19 era. Um, you are right. That is an element of boxing that does not exist uh, at this moment. And uh, well, well, we can always hope. It took an intellectual like you to recognize that trip. Well, you know, it's, I'm here for a reason. But uh, as with boxing, you do have controversy, and you guys had it on Saturday night. We did have a little bit, you know, and uh, one of the fu- matches that I was really excited to see, and it did turn out to be an interesting match, uh, we had a <clears throat> lightweight match between. Uh, two undefeated lightweights, uh, Jackson Marinez, uh from the Dominican Republic and uh, Roly Rolando Romero, uh, who is uh, a, a boxer that lives here in Las Vegas where I live and in, fights under the banner of the Mayweather gym. 
And they were fighting for a very fringe uh, title. And so it was interesting. It was a 12-round fight. And uh, Roley Romero had never been past six rounds before in his career. Uh, Mourinho's had been <clears throat> through the 11th round, never 12, but he had a lot more experience going the distance. And Romero was a, a, a significant favorite in the fight, even though he had fewer fights than uh, Mourinho's. And Romero was a big puncher. 11 of his 12 wins have come by knockout. And he is a powerful puncher who often disposes of his opponents early in matches. And so that was the framework coming into this match. But watching the video and, and kind of scouting this fight, I felt it was going to be a very competitive fight. And uh, I felt that Marinez was going to give uh, Romero all he could handle. And that was, in fact, the case. This fight went the full 12 rounds. Uh, our unofficial scorer, Steve Farhood, had a very wide margin for Marinez winning the fight. And as we called the fight, though we were careful to point out that there were some close rounds and there could be rounds that, you know, could go different way, um, our general call of the fight uh, kind of indicated the fact that Marinez had done better. Well, what do we know? Because when the scorecards <laughs> were presented, all three scorecards were in favor of Romero. The closest was 115-113 for Romero. Then there was a 116 and 112 score. And then there was a score that is now in my top five of uh, dumbfounding scores that I've seen. Uh, one judge had it 118 to 110 for Romero. Uh, now, Marinez, who, who is a very good boxer, uh, is not a big power puncher. And I don't know that he ever hurt Romero in the fight. But I don't know if Romero, who's a big power puncher, ever hurt Marinez. So while some of his punches may have looked like they were more powerful, there was no evidence of that. And certainly Marinez didn't go down. So it was a very controversial decision. Needless to say, Twitter um, lit up with, uh, with comments. Uh, about it. And uh, we were shocked and surprised to see the outcome of the of the match. And I think especially the 118-110 scorecard, which I commented on uh, uh, on the show afterward. One of the interesting offshoots of what happened is, and this is a, a, an inside Twitter thing, but a, a lot of the people on Twitter, it was interesting, were uh, there were some people, I wouldn't say a lot of people, there were some people that were kind of critical of uh, our way of reporting the fight because we didn't show more outrage at the decision. We clearly said, I mean, we were in stunned silence for a little while. And then, you know, we did, we all clearly all thought that Meninez won the fight. But we, I guess there wasn't enough invective from us about how atrocious the decision was, even though clearly Steve scored it, you know, for Medinez and we said that, you know, we all thought he won. It was intriguing that fans wanted a little more fire. Some did. And it trip. It's, it's an interesting question because even when we, we were there and I was announcing it, I wanted to be, uh, to show that we felt that it was the wrong decision. But, you know, I, I'm very uh, careful about not going so far off the deep end that I've dug myself into some kind of crazy hole that 
that you can't climb out of. And yet there are a lot of people that wanted more fire about it. That is really interesting because watching the fight, my wife brought up the point that you guys were pretty restrained, though you did mention the one one judge's cart was a total outlier. But there's not much you can do in that situation. You know, the, the commission is upset. Yeah, and, and the WBA, which uh, was the one that sanctioned this bout, and why it was for any kind of title, I don't know. It was just, you know, it should have just been a, a match between two uh, good prospects in the uh, in the lightweight division. WBA has uh, has suggested they're going to try and order a rematch uh, because of the controversial nature of the decision. But there isn't anything you can do, and you you do demonstrate your your distress with uh, with what was done. But that's about as far as you can go. Well, Al, I think one of the things I am curious about, though, are what the people are asking us on Twitter. Uh, that the questions they have for us. I know there's a bunch of them. Yeah, we've got some great ones this week. And uh, so the first question is, what young trainer today is going to be the next Freddie Roach, Emmanuel Stewart, et cetera? Who's in the future? And this comes from a big fan of yours, KC. There's another, a number of good uh, trainers who are, uh, who are making their way in the sport and are being, uh, doing some great work. Now, this person is already has arrived as a really excellent trainer, but probably doesn't have the the name recognition is superstar status that some of the names that you mentioned, Derek James, who is the trainer of uh, Errol Spence and Jermel Charlo. And of course he'll be in action in two big pay-per-view uh, cards that are coming up because Jermel Charlo on uh, September 26th on Showtime pay-per-view. And then uh, in uh, November, I think it's November 21st, uh, Errol Spence uh, in action um, against Danny Garcia. So he'll have Errol Spence. Derek James has become a really uh, big commodity as a trainer in boxing with those two champions and a number of other fighters as well. So he's a name that you could probably look to for uh, that might ascend to where some of those other people were. And you have great relationships with trainers. Is there one guy that you've loved working with when you know he's got a fighter that you're going to be calling the match that really sticks out for you and makes you happy? Well, there were many, many, <clears throat> there's been many great trainers, you know, Kevin Cunningham, who I want to get on as a guest here. He's, uh, who is a, a terrific uh, trainer. He'll be with Erickson Lubin on a fight that we'll have on Showtime on September 19th. And, uh, um, and of course you mentioned some of them like Freddie Roach and um, so many other, you know, trainers that uh, are, are, just excellent that I enjoy listening to. Uh, we, we had in this past fight, uh, gentleman that was sitting in for Robert Garcia, standing in for Robert Garcia um, in um, Menendez's corner. He delivered a, a, you might remember this part, he delivered this amazing, very disciplined soliloquy to Menendez. And afterwards I said, that's the best commentary I've heard all night and in the last four or five fights. <laughs> I said, this guy should be commentary with us. It was amazing. He, he just narrowed it all down in a nutshell what the fight was. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so our next question. I want to know your thoughts on the Hagler-Leonard, which you were involved with as a commentator, uh, reflects, reflecting on a classic fight. Yeah, now, um, now I didn't actually call the Hagler-Leonard fight. Uh, Strangely enough, I did cover it. I think I covered it for Sports Center. I can't remember, but I didn't call a fight. But I was there, and uh, you know that will be 
debated forever. Uh, and I'm one of those people that believes that uh, it was very close, obviously. I mean, I had the one outlying score from Jojo Guerra, which will live in infamy. I think it was 118, 110 for Leonard, which was, I think, same as what we were just talking about. But uh, I think that uh, I feel like Hagler won by a, by a, an inch, you know. I, <clears throat> I would give him a very narrow victory in that fight. And my, one of the things I hang my hat on is um, in the punch numbers, and of course that's not the only way you look at a fight, the CompuBox numbers, but he won the battle of the jab. Well, if you're the, the aggressor and the other guy's the boxer, as Sugary Leonard is, and you win the battle of the jab and you land more jabs, I think it's pretty telling that you might've won the fight. And it was very, very close. And uh, by the way, I think Marvin Hagler made a, a monstrous tactical error by fighting the first, I think, three rounds of the fight as a right-hander. I have no idea what that was all about. And I also think Marvin made the early mistake in the fight, which he kind of started to rectify, of wanting to box Ray Leonard. I think he, he, he maybe is, you know, uh, something, some little shred of ego, which Marvin Hagler was not known for, got in the way where he wanted to outbox the boxer to make it, to win at his game. And I think then he realized that's not a, a good call. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I would lean toward Hagler winning by just a smidge, but it was obviously a very close fight. Okay. Next question. Gotti Ward, Barrera, Morales. Yeah, which question. one? Well, they're both great fights. Uh, and I think the, you know, the viewer, the, or the, uh, the questioner is kind of asking, which one do I pick? I have to pick Barrero. Now, there were three uh, fights, uh, and I guess he's saying, which trilogy do you like? Um, the Gotti Ward trilogy was wildly exciting, obviously, and uh, was, a, you know, thrilling to watch. But so was Barrero, uh, Barrero uh, Morales. And, uh, and the reason Morales Barrera wins out is because they're simply better fighters. The, the, their trilogy was fought on a higher level. They are Hall of Fame fighters. And even though Arturo Gatto's in the Hall of Fame, with all due respect, I love Arturo Gatti, he's not nearly on the level of those fighters. Um, and while I love Arturo Gatti, I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame because he's not on that level as a fighter, as exciting as he is. I, I could, they could put a big, uh, uh, you know, uh, exhibit there uh, about Arturo Gatti in the Hall of Fame, and I'd be all for it because he meant a lot to the sport, but not, isn't on the level of the fighters that get inducted. But that's another story. But in picking between these two trilogies, I would have to pick uh, Morales Barrera because, Barrero because it was fought at such a high skill level. Okay. And this is a question I've always wondered about, and from Robert McWilliams. Do you think beards help absorb the punch? You know, that, that was a very interesting question. That's why I think we selected it. Because for a long, long time, commissions would not allow fighters to fight with facial hair, with a, maybe a mustache, but not with a beard. And I think maybe that was in their thinking or they didn't feel like it was, it was fair. And then in recent years, that has been relaxed and fighters have been allowed to box with beards, though they try to get them to closely crop them a little bit more. Um, you know, I don't think they want a guy that has a ZZ Top beard in the <laughs> ring. <laughs> but, uh, 
But I have asked fighters this question, a number of them, and almost the uniform answer is that it does not do anything to um, absorb the, uh, the punch or make it less uh, damaging. So I'm going to go with what the boxers have told me, and I'm going to say no. It, and, and apparently the commissions believe that because they've allowed fighters now to wear beards into the ring. And it's interesting when you think about it because, of course, a beard can be someone's persona. You know, that's a, a – and after all, everybody's a brand, right? You know, no matter sure. what you do in life, you're kind of a brand. Uh, so that's the brand of the boxer. So if you have to take it off when you fight it, it's kind of – it's interesting. It makes you a different person. And, you know, off, boxers always did that before, but now uh, they don't make them do it. Well, and the, the final question, what do you think of the Tyson Roy Jones Jr. whatever? I had to accept that question, even though it's a, a tricky one. Um, I don't think anything gives me more mixed emotions than that. Uh, I, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I don't really want to see 50-year-old men in the ring. And they're going to be in there. The way it appears, some of this is for real. It's not just an exhibition. Uh, and if it was an exhibition, they'd have a hard time getting people to pay, you know, the, the pay-per-view rate for it. And they even push the fight back. There's even some questions whether Roy Jones will participate, but given the them pushing it back. But... They've pushed the fight back to November because they want to maximize on the, the pay-per-view possibilities. So it's interesting to me that it's fascinating that it's happening uh, on some levels, but I have many, many misgivings about it. And, um, and I, I would very much hope that it is not something that starts a trend. So I'm hoping that this is not uh, what our future brings uh, on a grand scale in boxing. Now, one of the things... I am. Uh, I, I would like to see more of in the future is Raul Marquez broadcasting boxing, and I will see a lot of that um, as uh, as boxing continues to make its uh, comeback after the uh, in the midst of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And um, he, of course, is our guest for this podcast. Raul was one hundred and fifty four pound champion. Before that, he participated in the nineteen ninety two Olympics. Uh, he lost in his second round uh, at the Olympics in a very controversial decision. I announced that match. I did the boxing for NBC in 1992 in Barcelona. Uh, I thought Raul won that fight, uh, that match. Uh, they call them fights in amateur boxing. And I, you know, but he was eliminated from the Olympics. But it was a grand experience for him to be there. And he had a storied amateur career. He was a fantastic amateur boxer. And then went on to become a professional champion at 154 pounds, fought for the middleweight title as well. Uh, and he has been a great, great uh, friend and uh, colleague uh, in, in recent years that I've known him. And I've, I've known Raul since he was in his teens because I called early fights of his when he was uh, an amateur. And so here is our conversation with Raul Marquez. Raul, it is a delight to talk with you, uh, and uh, I've been looking forward to this because you and I work together, of course, at Showtime Championship Boxing, and we get to visit, but I don't get to share your story with uh, the folks out there like I want to. So this is a good opportunity for me to get to talk to you. 
Yes, I, I agree. And, you know, I really appreciate you. And, uh, you know, thank you for having me on. Uh, you know, besides working with uh, Showtime, you know, I've been with Showtime doing the Showbox series and then I do Showtime Championship Boxing in Spanish. I've been uh, with the company for eight years now, but me and you go way back. Yeah. If you remember, if you remember. <laughs> Boy, do we ever. And we're going to revisit a little bit of that. In fact, that's kind of where I want to start. Um, you, uh, when you came to the United States as a very young boy, and first in Chicago, and then you guys settled in Houston, uh, your dad, Arturo, was a big boxing fan and a, into boxing, and he got you involved in amateur boxing. And you right. rose up the ranks of, uh, of amateur boxing with hard work and diligence and my, if I'm not mistaken, I think the first time we encountered each other was when you won your national junior Olympics tournament, correct? Uh, actually, no. Well, I won the national, I did win the national junior Olympics. Uh, but the first time that we did encounter each other was in 1989. Um, I had just won the nationals, you know, the U, back then it was the USA championship. That's right, yeah. The big boy, you know, the age didn't matter anymore. But yeah. uh, you, you covered me in the Olympic Festival in, uh, in Oklahoma yeah, City. The Olympic Festival was the place where we first, we first got. And you, of course, were at that point making your way toward what would be a, the U.S. championships and uh, representing the United States in the Olympic Games. Yeah, uh, actually, that year was a big year for me, 1989. You know, it's the first time that I had gone to the Nationals. Uh, open division and I won the nationals. And then like you said, I represented, uh, you know, I made the national team and I was able to travel uh, on the USA team for four years. You know, we traveled all over the world uh, competing against different countries. Uh, you know, but also, you know, the Olympic year 92, you know, you still have to go through all the trials and to, to make the Olympic team, you know, the Olympic trials, the Olympic box off. But uh, yeah, the first time we met was in, in 89 at the uh, Olympic Festival in Oklahoma City. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Yeah, and, I got the gold medal there, by the way, yeah. Yeah, you were great in that. And then it was my supreme privilege to do the Olympics in uh, 1992 for NBC when you uh, participated and you fought very well in the Olympic Games. You, 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 you lost in the quarterfinals in a very yeah. close match. But that Olympic experience for you, I have to think, was very special. Absolutely, and uh, by the way, that was called the Olympic triple cast that you were doing. That's no, right. Doing, yeah, well, no, actually, Bob Pop and Wally Madden were doing the Olympic triple cast, and you were doing the, uh, you were covering the Olympics, you know, for uh, NBC. Right. And, uh, but yeah, um, I, I won I won two fights. I fought uh, David Vitabion, who recently passed, you know, he, he was uh, from Nigeria. Uh, he came back four years later. I always got to tell that story because we fought at 156 and, you know, he was a tall guy. He was 6'3". And four years later, he came back and represented Canada instead of Nigeria, Canada in the Olympic Games as a heavyweight, as a heavyweight. Wow, out that's amazing. And he got a silver medal lost in the finals to Felix Sabon, the Cuban Felix Sabon. His name is One David. Lab from your weight class was, just, was in the 150s, right, or 140s? 156, 156. Right. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, I, I fought uh, three fights. I lost to Orphan Delibas in the quarterfinals in a fight that, um, you know, it was, it was a close fight. Very it, close. Even, even up until the third round, the second half of the third round, that's why 
I was still ahead, and then I, I just all of a sudden this com new computer scoring system they just went beep 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 beep, and I lost by uh, I believe five points or four points. Really, really and, close. Yeah, the, the guy that beat me went on to the finals. Uh, the Libas, Open the Libas from uh, Amsterdam, Holland, and he got a silver medal. And Juan Lemos, who got the gold medal uh, from Cuba, I had beat like three months before the Olympics at a, at the World Challenge. You know, it, it just you know, uh, it was a different tournament. It wasn't the Olympics. It didn't have the name of the Olympics. But yeah, just being a part of the Olympic team is something I'll never forget. You know, we. A lot of us uh, Olympians that were on the team, we, we keep in touch. You know, Montel Griffin, you know, he's got his own show too. You know, I was just on a show uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, Larry Donald, you know, Tim Austin, of course, the Golden Boy Oscar De La Hoya, uh, Pepe Riley, Chris Bird. We, we all keep in touch. Great, great Olympic great. team. Yeah, we, we had a good Olympic team, you know, but uh, the, the biggest memory that I have from that is just uh, you know walking in the Olympic uh, ceremony, so the opening ceremonies of the 1992 uh, games in Barcelona, and just you know the, all the countries, all of the crowd, everybody roaring. I mean that it's it's something I'm never going to forget. Very special for sure. And you know you on an emotional level, I would think even though you would go on to do great things as a pro, and we'll talk about those in a moment or two, mm -hmm. your dad, Arturo, you, you, you talk about his, how inspiring he is to you and how he instilled in you the idea of never quitting and, uh, and going after your goal. I would think that when you got on that world stage, you must have had him in your mind uh, while you were competing. Absolutely. As a, I mean, my dad was, was there. He was able to go yeah. to the Olympics. Uh, you know, back then, uh, you know, I, after I turned professional, you got signed with Lou Duva. So he was able to, he was there with Lou Duva and my sister, uh, Veronica, who was, eight, she was 11 years old. She got to go to the Olympic Games and, and my mom and, and my brother stayed back uh, here in Houston at home. But uh, yeah, my dad is always very supportive. He, you know, he, that's the reason why I got into boxing. My dad was a big, huge boxing fan and, uh, you know, followed the old fights, old timers back in the Mexican fighters like Ruben Oliveras, uh, Carlos Zarate, those type of fighters, Salvador Sanchez. And, uh, you know, my dad was always there for me, pushing me, you know, like when it was time to go work, when it was time to go run, uh, we'll push each, each other because, you know, he had a, a day job and, you know, he'll work from three o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the evening. He said, I'm going to lay down in the living room, I'm going to take a nap, uh, wake me up in an hour, two hours, so we'll go to the gym. So, you know, it was also up to me to wake him up and up to him, for him to get up. He was tired, you know, but he would take me to the gym and we would work, would work. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I could honestly say that I'm proud that I've always, uh, you know, for most of the time, listened to my dad, you know, because <laughs> uh, everything. None you know, of us I, listen you know, all the time to our dad, do we? Yeah. You know, he, he uh, you know, always giving me advice, always yeah. being in my ear, telling me, yeah. you know, do this, do that. Don't mess up, and uh, I'm glad that I did because you know I was a, a very uh, decorated amateur. You know, won many. I won every tournament you would think of at the nationals, and you know went to the Olympic games, and and uh, I had a, a great, great amateur career. Yeah, you were extraordinary as an amateur, and you know those stories you told about your dad—that's the the side of uh, that people don't realize. Uh, yeah. Parents making that kind of sacrifice 
for their kids. And I see it in amateur boxing all the time. Uh, and it leads people to achieve, you know, what you achieved. And, and then you, of course, turned professional and you reeled off 25 victories and found yourself fighting for the 154 pound championship uh, and uh, realized that dream as well. Uh, you were uh, an entertaining and exciting fighter to watch as a pro. Never, never did a fan say he didn't get his money's worth out of a Raul Marquez fight. And what did it mean to you to become a world champion? Well, that was, that was another big, big accomplishment, you know, for me and my father and all the Marquez family, because, you know, it, just, it wasn't just my, my dad, you know, but also my mom, you know, sure. my mom meals for me. Uh, she was there behind me, you know, even though she, she didn't attend uh, a lot of the fights, a lot of the amateur fights and a lot of the pro fights, she really didn't attend. But yeah, winning that world title uh, uh, for the vacant world title against Anthony Stevens uh, on ABC, Wild Water Sports. It right. Papacana Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada and uh, in April of 1997. Uh, it was, uh, you know, something that we had been working for all our life, you know, I, uh, since I started boxing when I was seven years old, you know, going through the amateur ranks. And of course, when you become a, a, an elite amateur, your goal is to, you know, turn pro and become a world champion. And yeah, we, you know, it, it took, took me a while, it took me, you know, five years after the Olympics, uh, but I got it accomplished. And uh, it was, it was a big, big accomplishment for, for us and all the Marquez uh, family. You uh, defended your title against Keith Mullings, who was a terrific fighter, and it was a great fight. Uh, and I think that win also demonstrated to people uh, that you, the, what a quality fighter you were, you know, uh, that, because he was a tough guy at that time, and that was a, a very tough first title defense. Actually, my first title defense was against Romalis Ellis. Oh, that's right. It was Ellis. 1988 okay. uh, Olympic bronze medalist, and that was on. Right, let, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Romalis Ellis, which was just as tough. Yeah. yeah. That was, I mean, he he was a decorated amateur, got a bronze medal in the Olympics in, in uh, Seoul, Korea in 88. You know, same team with Roy Jones and Riddick Bowe and all them guys. So, yeah, I knew it was going to be a tough fight, you know, and I, I, I knocked him out in four rounds. And then uh, after that, that's when I ended up fighting uh, Keith Mullins on a big pay-per-view show when Oscar DeLoya fought uh, Hector Macho Camacho. I was a co-main event. Uh, it was a great opportunity for me. And I knew Keith Mullins from the amateurs, too, because he was in the Olympic trials. And, uh, you know, he was a guy that uh, boxed in the Army. He had a lot of experience, and he was tough. And it was, a, it was a very – it was a brutal fight. It was a brutal fight, Al. I mean, my hands were hurt from mm. the – Third, fourth round, on on. I mean, they were bruised up. I got cut up really bad. Um, mm. You know, the, the referee and the uh, doctor almost stopped the fight too. And I was like, no, 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 let me go, let me go. I'm okay, I'm okay. You know, and thank God because you know, I guess they they saw my spirits. You know, I wanted to keep going. I wanted to keep going, so they allowed the fight to keep going, and I I pulled out a split decision uh, against Keith Mullins, and uh, you know, it was it was a good win for me. It really turned out to be a good win because my next fight, when I lost the title uh, to your boy Campus, you know, I, everybody knows the story. I was in there too soon, you know, like we were, me and my father were inexperienced at, 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 you know, the boxing game. From September to December, you know, I mean, I had gotten cut up 
uh, I think I got like 70 some stitches or something like that. Mm, wow. And then I'm there three, not even three months later, I'm going through camp and I'm fighting a knockout puncher, uh, your boy campus. At that point, he was like known as the next Chavez to take over boxing in, in Mexico. Uh, he only had two losses and he was a knockout artist. He had a bunch of knockouts. And uh, I just, you know, I, in that fight, talking about the campus fight, I, I, I couldn't see, you know, like towards, as the fight kept going, my face kept swelling and swelling because it was still traumatized from the Keith Mullins fight. I mean, my, my face looked fine from the outside, but it wasn't healed from the inside. Mm. And they ended up stopping the fight. But that night, Keith Mullins knocked out terrible Terry Norris. Oh, yeah. That tells you how important what how... Kind of fighter, yeah, what kind of fighter Keith Mullins was. He goes and knocks out Terry Norris. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, you had a your pro career, you were 41 and 4. You uh you had a a, a terrific professional career. And one of the things that you say about your pro career was that you fans know that you always gave the maximum effort. I came to fight. I mean, uh, my, my, you know, when I got in the ring, I was, my mentality was seek and destroy. You know, I never took a step back. I came to fight. If my hands were hurt, if I was cut up, I was bloody. I had a, that warrior mentality, you know, and uh, all my fights were like that. I mean, I, <laughs> Even though, you know, I, I uh, a bunch of my fights, I, I, I got cut, but, you know, I came to get, give people, you know, the money's worth. They wanted to see boxing, and uh, that's, that, that was my style of boxing. And you were one of the best inside fighters and one of the best body punchers uh, uh, in the sport at that time. Is that something, and you work, you often, you work with your sons and teach them boxing, and you watch boxers develop. Is body punching something that sometimes gets ignored uh, by uh, by trainers or by people that are teaching young people to box? It all depends on what kind of trainer you are. But, I, you know, if you want to be a complete uh, trainer or a complete fighter, it's good to incorporate a good body attack, you know, because we all know, you know, if you invest early in a good body attack and you really work the body the first couple of rounds, the first half of the fight, Trust me, in the second half of the fight, it's going to pay off. The, mm -hmm. the, your opponent will wear down, you know, if, especially if he's a real, real fast guy that's real mobile and elusive. I mean, you you got you to gotta work the body. You got to cut off the ring and dig to the body. You know, we just had uh, the, the guy, uh, Leo, Angelo Leo, who fought, uh, uh, what's the guy that he fought? Uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, fought, I'm trying to remember myself. Tremaine Williams. You fought Tremaine Williams. Tremaine Williams, yeah. Tremaine Williams had Leo not I, the, the fight at the beginning. Mm -hmm. ugly, you know, and that's gonna happen. Why? Because Williams, you know, would would move and be elusive and hold, and uh, but Leo kept pecking away at the body. Kept pecking away at the body. By the second half of the fight, I mean, uh, Angelo Leo, you know, owned him. You know, he he. You know, he warmed down. He was just warmed down with that vicious. He was a little punching machine, you know, with that vicious body attack. So yeah, uh, fighters uh, that uh, it doesn't matter what kind of style fighter you are, whether you're an elusive boxer mm -hmm. or a guy that comes forward and attacks. It, I think it's really good to have a, a good body attack. I can never forget about punching downstairs because uh, 
I mean, it wears down your opponent and it gasses them up and, you know, makes them drop their hands and makes them uh, not move the same. During your uh, time as a, um, as a, a top fighter, it was the era when Oscar De La Hoya, your teammate at the Olympics in 1992, was the, uh, the top name in the sport for right. the most part. And you watched him up close and from afar, and you saw him both as a fighter and as a charismatic figure. What was it that made Oscar De La Hoya, do you think, such a larger-than-life figure in the sport of boxing? Oh, I think, uh, you know, Oscar was a, a really good fighter. You know, he, he's a good boxer. He's got great speed and power, but he just had that charm. You know, he just mm -hmm. had something that uh, other fighters didn't have, you know, and he, he connected really well with the fans. And I tell everybody, you know, even uh, now that, you know, the big names right now, you know, the big guy, Canelo, but never in my life, you know, when I, I fought on Oscar's undercards, you know, uh, a couple of times and I was there for a lot of his fights so I'm telling you in Vegas or wherever he was fighting yeah. doesn't matter what city he was in uh, um, the week of the fight uh, it was crazy the casinos were packed they were jam-packed and I, I've never seen that again I, you know I, I haven't seen it with any other fighter with any other fighter the way Oscar uh, had that he was like a magnet, you know, he attracted, you know, all the fans and of course all the women, yeah. you know, he was a, yeah. he was a golden boy. He attracted all the women. It was crazy. The weigh-ins, that was a part of the weigh-ins, you know, and you'll see all kinds of stuff, you know, uh, flying, being thrown at Oscar from women, you know, and, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's the truth, you know. Uh, it's like a Tom Jones concert where they used to throw things at him, like right? Concert, yeah. It was like the yeah. Beatles or something, you know, and he... He was just that kind of guy. He, he yeah. was, uh, and, and you know, and of course he backed it up because he had talent, and he would win, and, and he would win fights, and and he would try to fight the best, you know, Oscar. Yes. Never, try to fight the best, you know. He never. I'm sure it was business, you know, but he didn't treat it so much as he always fought the best, and that's what people liked about Oscar too, you know. So, um, he he was he was great for boxing. Sometimes it gets overlooked that he his yeah. level of competition that he fought was was really extraordinary. Yeah. Let's talk about your career post boxing. Uh, after you retired from the ring, uh, you worked very hard at becoming an excellent sportscaster. You have done the job both in Spanish and in English, and uh, because of the fact that you take the same attitude toward it that you did in into boxing to right. work hard at it and do a great job you have in fact done a great job did you see it as something that you really needed to work hard at uh you know uh, the, the first time I've, I've been doing broadcasting for a long time I, my first opportunity uh, and i know you know the producer back in rick sierra mm -hmm. he shot it hey you wanted to try some uh, broadcasting that was like in 1996 and it was, uh, it was actually, it was a fight. I think it was Yuri Boy Campos that was fighting in California in Sacramento. That's ironic. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try, I'll try it out. So I, I, you know, that was back then. That was a Telemundo thing. And all through the years, I, you know, I've worked with different broadcasters. I worked with you before. Recently, we did the Olympic trials. Sure. We did the Olympic trials. Remember in Louisiana, here, in, not too far from Houston. And uh, I've always knew that. 
you know, once I started, got the ball rolling and, you know, and I'm the type of uh, aggressive guy that, hey, if there's any more opportunities, give me an opportunity. I want to try it out. Let's do this. So I did a lot of international calls with the Colonel. I did some with you. I did some with uh, Steve Farhood, Barry Tompkins, Rich Murata, Kurt Menefee, and just, I did uh, NBC Boxing, the, uh, the boxing series with Bob Papa back when Rocky Juarez and Juan Diaz were coming up, you know, so working, just, I worked with everybody, you know, like in Spanish and English, you know, Mario Lopez, Ricardo yeah. uh, Celis, uh, Alejandro Luna, now that I do the Spanish. Your partner on Showtime, yeah. Adrián García Márquez, Bernie, Bernardo Osuna, just, just everybody that's, that we know, you know, we're in the boxing world, so you know yeah. all the podcasters, so I've worked with everybody, and, uh, you know, HBO Latino, doing the Spanish, uh, and, you know, in 2012, that's when I, I got the opportunity to do Spanish World Championship, Showtime Championship Boxing, in Spanish with Alejandro Luna. And, uh, you know, I was sitting somewhere in Puerto Rico, I believe. We did a, uh, we did a uh, Showtime Championship Boxing. And uh, I was talking to David Dinkins. And, you know, and I said, man, I want, and I was, I, everybody knew, you know, different people. And I said, I want an opportunity. I, w- I want to do something in English. I could do this, you know, and, um, and maybe Showbox or something. And sure enough, they gave me an opportunity in October of that same year. And then they gave me, you know, I, I guess I did well, obviously. And they brought me back another show. And then, you know, 2013, I'm on. And now this is 2020. I'm on Showbox. And, uh, you know, it's been great. I mean, what, you know, working with Barry Tompkins and Steve Farhood, I mean, uh, you can't go wrong. You know, two Hall of Famers, you know, I, I, I felt like I've learned a lot from them. They, they teach me a lot. Steve Farhood is like my English teacher. And, of course, Barry Tompkins is like, my mentor, you know, we, that's another man that's covered me back in the days when you were around with you and the amateurs. So I'm telling you, I'm truly blessed. You know, uh, life after boxing has been really great for me, you know, uh, especially, you know, as a broadcaster and then being with the Showtime family, uh, you know, everybody's great. Uh, can't go wrong. <laughs> can't go wrong. And you have one of the, one of the things that, uh, really is your calling card, I think. And all the broadcasters that you mentioned would all agree on this. And I've seen comments, very eloquent comments from Barry in interviews uh, and stories about you. What everyone respects about you is that you you really work at it and that you constantly want to get better. And it's true for all of us. You know, you can't ask for more of a person than that. I really do. You know, I treated like uh, like uh, I did my boxing career. You know, the, the, the week of the fight, I zone in. You know, I get married to whoever's going to, the fighters that are going to fight. You know, I try to learn everything I, I can about them. Of course, you know, look at videos, look at the bios that Showtime sends us, and I uh, read articles about them. I, I love to attend the fighter meetings because it's very important to know what the fighters are thinking and how their camp went and, you know, what kind of game plan they have. So I try to do all that. I try to get involved in all that. It's very important for me, like, you know, when I do on cameras, uh, you know, on Showbox, you know, in Spanish, we're, you know, we do staff, so it's different. But when I do the on cameras, uh, which I, I've worked with you before on, on, show, on, I think you did a Showbox show with me before. Yes, I yes. Showbox. When I do on cameras, let me tell you, like, I get in front of the camera and I, and I practice, you know, before we do the rehearsal. 
And then once we do the rehearsal and then it's time for showtime, I'm, I'm ready to go. So it's very, it's very important to me, you know, and sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm there practicing and, and, you know, nothing against fans. You know, you're always going to have fans and some fans are not my <laughs> Man, I, look, I'm in a zone right now. Like, it's, I treat this like a yeah. fight. I, I don't want to get disturbed. You know, I'm, I'm about to be on camera. This is big for me. This is my job. This is the way I treat my family. Uh, yeah, they understand. They yeah. understand. Well, they love you. The fans, the fans love you. They want to interact yeah. with you. And that, that's right. the other part of you as a, a personality. Somebody tweeted the other day, some, uh, a, young, a fan that maybe wasn't around when you were a fighter tweeted that they, uh, they went back and looked at some of your fights and they right. said, wow, you know, Raul Marquez was a beast in the ring. And they said, I know him as this smiling, wonderful guy that, you know, announces the boxing. And I, I met him once and he's so great. And he said, and then he's a beast in the ring. Uh, you treat the fans with great respect and you, you ingratiate yourself to them. And so that's why they want to be around you. Absolutely, and I and I retweeted to that fan that because he told me when we were we were on one of the fighter meetings uh, uh, for for the fight, and and he told me the story. So I'm, I went back and I looked and I said, you know, well, you know, my mentality inside the ring was, you know, seek and destroy, you know, but outside the ring, you know, and I'm telling you, I'm a nice guy. You you know, I am, and, and <laughs> you are really all fighters. You know, we it's a lot of love. You know, it's it's crazy how we go in the ring and you know mm -hmm. we're, we're we're warriors, you know, but outside the ring, we're all uh, good-hearted, good-hearted people. The majority of us, the majority of us are the majority yeah. of us, yes. I always say, you know, I've covered athletes in all the, a lot of different sports. And though I've done the majority of my career in boxing, I've covered every sport. And uh, boxers, uh, by wide margin, are the, most, yeah. the easiest to deal with and the most fun to, to interact with. And, um, and you are right at the you're right at the top of that list. Your, your um, showbox shows to me are fascinating because you and Barry and Steve Farhood, Barry Tompkins and Steve Farhood have what I consider to be almost the perfect chemistry for a three-man announced team. Very tough to have a three-man announced team because it, you know, there's only so much airtime. Right. And I think the three of you have achieved almost the perfect chemistry. And I know that's something that you all three uh, really pay attention to. Yeah, we do. I mean, we, we have our own team going, you know, with also with Gordon Hall and, and Rich Gone, our producer, and uh, Rick Phillips, you know, and, every, and, every, and everybody that's involved, you know, we're all a team. But, you know, me and Barry and Steve, like, you know, besides having uh, the fighter meetings, you know, when, you, when we, we – Talk, we talk to the fighters, then we got a, a production meeting, and we, we talk with Rich Gone and Gordon and stuff. What are we going to talk about on camera? We also have our own meeting. You know, the day of the fight on a Friday. You know, they all come to my room. They come. You know, we come. They come to my room, and uh, you know, we talk. We talk, and we we talk, and we talk, and we figure out this and that, and how does this sound better? Or should we talk about this? Because you know, uh, it's just very important. It's very important for for Barry. You know, I mean. For Barry's a pro, you know, Barry's like, Barry could do whatever, you know. I always joke with Barry, like, he's like, you know, he covered uh, uh, dog shows, you know, bobsledding, you know. He always tells me, like, <laughs> how do you cover bobsledding, Barry? Like, here they come, here they go. <laughs> you know, that's very confident. So, Barry and Steve, you know, we talk about us being on camera and, you know, how important it is for me. You know, like I said, going back to the on cameras, 
it's very important for me to the, the deliver, delivery, you know, when you deliver to the audience, you know, I want to make sure the audience understands, you know, what me as a fighter, you know, um, my interpretation of what the game plan or what other fighters have to do or what they've done and, and just break it down. So they'll understand, you know, when they're watching the fight uh, and I'm talking about it, they'll be like, oh, that's what Raul said, you know, the guy's doing it or not doing it. So all that is important for us. So I, yeah, I think, you know, and, and I read about us and it's, I love it when fans tell us that we're a great team or we're one of the best teams. It, I mean, it shows that people see your work and I, and I like that. I love to hear that. It motivates me. Uh, it makes me even work harder, uh, Al, to even be yeah. better. And, and that, that, that's all you want to do. You know, you want to get better. You want to feel more comfortable and, 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 you know, hopefully I'll be doing it for a long time. Like how you've been doing it. You were, you were, you would be a fixture in boxing because you are superb at it and people love you. Your, your, your genuine, uh, attitude comes across on camera and you are people, people know it when somebody's a phony and you are definitely not. <laughs> we have a fight coming up. Um, there is a important match coming up on uh, September 26th, a uh, pay-per-view uh, show uh, that features the Charlo brothers, uh, Jamal Charlo and Jamel Charlo, each of them in a very tough fight. Um, let's talk about Jamal Charlo first uh, against uh, Sergei Derevchenko. Uh, that is a really tough fight for him and one that I think could be very interesting. Yes, uh, you know, first of all, I want to say like, the Charlo brothers, you know, they're here in Houston. So I have, I, you know, I have a place in my heart for them because when I used to train at Willis Savannah's gym, who recently passed away, I'm, I'm sure you know, yes. about uh, Juan Diaz. And, you know, he was really a good fixture here in Houston for the amateur program, you know, always motivated kids, you know, got them out of the streets and, you know, to compete in the, in the amateurs. But yeah, uh, the, the Charlo brothers, I, I always, I look at them as kids, you know, because when I would train there, I remember the, the little two little twin kids walking around, running around, you know, and uh, even though they they never won big tournaments, Al, in the amateurs, you know, they always kept coming back, always kept coming back, you know. So I, but even back then, I could see the discipline that they had. I said, you know, in, in an amateur boxing or in, in, just in boxing in general, is the you know you could be a big, highly decorated amateur, but when you turn pro, if you start, you know, uh, messing up, partying. You know the party you know drinking not dedicated to them, you're not gonna make it but these kids always came back even though they lost an amateur they always came back and i knew they would make it and look where they're at now but getting back to jamal uh Derevinchenko, that's a you know that's a very very tough uh, uh, opponent you know on paper that's the toughest opponent to date for uh jamal i remember covering Derevinchenko. Besides a highly decorated amateur career, I remember covering him on Showbox. I labeled him as one of the top prospects to become a world champion. I, I, I talked about him on, on Showbox. And now, um, you know, he's going to fight Jamal. Vitamichenko fought uh, Danny Jacobs, you know, in a, in a very close fight. And he fought uh, Triple G in a fight that a lot of people yep. uh, thought that, you know, he, he won. So, I mean, this is a really good uh it's a, it's a pay-per-view you know like in, in boxing we got contenders i love it you got contenders you got uh champions which both the charles you know they've been contenders they've been champions so this is a step up 
to see if they could be pay-per-view superstars. And, you know, Jamal is fighting the right guy that could escalate him, a big win here, a knockout. Impressive. You know, they, they could become that because they're, they're twins. They're promoted the same. And, you know, I know you haven't asked me about Jermel, but Jermel is going to fight uh, Rosario. That's uh, another, on paper, that's the toughest. Yes. You know, he knocked out uh, J-Rock J uh, uh, Williams, who, you know, was another, another guy that I had followed on, on uh, Showbox. And I thought that he would, you know, he would become a world champion and he's, he's he'll he'll be back you know but rosario knocked him out and uh, yeah, again that that's a tough tough uh fight for uh jermel too uh, so the charles you know they're like i said you know uh contenders champions now we're gonna see if they could become uh, pay-per-view superstars and they're finding the right opponent and i think uh you know big wins here devastating knockouts or domination that's gonna you know help them Get there. Well, we will see. We will see if they. We will see if they can become pay-per-view superstars. I know one thing: you are a star as a broadcaster, and you're a star as a human being as well, Raúl. And um, I am thrilled that I have gotten to cover you over the years and know you and be your uh, your colleague as a broadcaster. And I really appreciate you visiting with us. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I look forward to you know, covering fights on Showtime and Espanol and on Showbox. Make sure everybody tunes in. You know, that's where the best boxing is. Can't go wrong. Showtime boxing. You got it. We got some great boxing there. Raul, thanks very much. Gracias. So that was my chat with Raul Marquez, uh, who, of course, uh, not only was a great boxer, but a great broadcaster as well, Trip. Well, he does broadcasting both English and Spanish. I'm still learning English, and I'm old. <laughs> How does he do it? It's one thing to be um, uh, to have two languages, be uh, multilinguistic, uh, but but it's also something to just work on one language, which we're all doing. Uh, you're yeah. right, but no, he. You know, it's fascinating. I talk to Raúl every once in a while about it, and uh, it it's. I have huge respect for people that can. Uh, that can do a discipline and do it so well in, in two different languages. And he does, you know, he's, he does a great job in both. And, uh, uh, and you know, it's, he's up to the challenge. Well, that's the fun part of the show. You get to check in with people that you've known and to cover the guy for over 30 years, you have to mention to him that he's getting up there now. <laughs> it is funny. You're right. I dealt with him when he was, a, as I say, a teenager. And now he's, you know, Raul is, uh, you know, and it's probably in his, I guess, late forties. And so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it is interesting to see, see that happen. Yeah. And by the way, that Olympics in 92, it looked like it was the funnest Olympics ever. Was that a great experience for you? Absolutely. You couldn't be more correct. I did one other Olympics in 96 in Atlanta, which was decidedly not as much fun for so <laughs> many reasons. Number one, we barely showed any boxing and I announced, you know, dozens and dozens of boxing matches that never saw the light of day. Uh, the Atlanta games were fraught with issues, not the least of which was a bombing in the middle of them. Uh, and it was very uh, logistically, uh, ironically, it was more challenging logistically in Atlanta than it was in Barcelona. Go figure that one out. And uh, so 92 was the Olympics were 
extraordinary on every single level. The, we were, our boxing was right next to where the venue was for the, uh, uh, the dream team and the basketball. Oh. And we used wow. to get, uh, we used to get uh, the basketball players coming over to the boxing and we'd be sitting with them in the, in our, you know, hospitality part. That was where I got to be friends with Carl Malone and John Stockton. And of course you are a Salt Lake City person. Uh, so you're keenly aware of those two gentlemen. Uh, and and uh, they would come over to the boxing uh, frequently and, uh, and they were just great. And, uh, and I stayed in touch with them for a long time and came up to jazz games and uh, enjoyed them. Plus we'd have MJ come over and Magic, uh, you know, and all those people. And, and it, was, it was just great. And then we, we were a couple times were able to go over and see the basketball. They're not very often because you're, when you're at an Olympics, you're literally working during the, the time that you're working, you are working nonstop. And if you're gonna enjoy uh, anything personally, it's gonna be much later. Although Barcelona was a delightful city. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, I remember watching those games and it looks magic. So earlier you said that the decision you had on one of the fights on Saturday was your top five worst decisions and or work, worst judges. Do you have, can we, can we get an all-star team maybe in a future show of your worst judging decisions? I should do that. I'll have to, I'll have to go back and research a little bit because this may come as a shock. Uh, sometimes at this point in life, I don't remember everything perfectly. Uh, so I'm going to have to go back and research a little, but I can, I'll be able to easily think of a couple that will, 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 will come to mind quickly, but I'm going to do that. Maybe I'll see if I can put together my top five terrible scorecards and they might be in a fight in which the right person won, but that one just happened to be a, a terrible card where they had it for the wrong person or they had a margin for somebody that was absurd. So we'll work on that. Uh, speaking of future shows, our next episode is one that I am going to strongly urge everyone to, to avail themselves of because it's really, really fascinating. And we've already taped one of the, we've already done one of the interviews and, uh, and, and I know it's, it's something that's going to be of interest. Uh, we have Mauro Ranallo as our guest, my play-by-play -play partner on uh, Showtime Championship Boxing. And we are going to, in, we're also going to have as our guest, uh, Jose Ramirez, the very fine 140 pound champion who is fighting in a very good fight uh, on August 29th against Victor Postal, who is an excellent fighter and will be quite a challenge to him. And that's going to be uh, an ESPN fight that Top Rank's putting on. And uh, we'll have Jose Ramirez uh, and our show will drop just about four days before that fight. So it'll be a nice preview for everybody to get ready for that matchup. So um, I'm looking forward to, and you know, Tripp, it's funny how you don't get to interact or always interview people. I realized I've never interviewed Jose Ramirez. And when they were, we were doing the correspondence back and forth, uh, Evan Korn, the PR guy for, uh, for Top Rank said, Jose's anxious to do an interview with you. And I, I, it's so funny because I realized we never have. So that's fun to do a show like this. And, and there's some great characters out there and we've had a lot on the show. That is for sure. And we're going to have a, a lot more. So uh, I want to thank you, Mr. Tripp, for uh, your fine work. And our thanks to Lee for his excellent work behind the scenes. 
And uh, we are going to be back with you with our next episode. As I said, it's going to feature Mauro Ronaldo and Jose Ramirez and a lot more of your questions as well. Take care, everybody. <laughs>